Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. I am at the National Biodiesel Conference in Tampa, Florida. I know you're saying... You're not going to feel sorry for me a bit when I say it was in the 40s here this morning. I tell you what, it felt good to me after uh, wind chills below zero back uh, in the Midwest. But the locals here in Tampa are bundled up. Stocking caps, scarves, uh, they're not handling the 40-degree weather uh, too well. But uh, you can tell the Midwestern folks, they're out looking at, at the scenery and enjoying sunshine. It may be cooler than they thought it would be down here, but it's much better than back home. Well, we're here for the National Biodiesel Conference, and there's a lot to talk about. We'll be here again uh, tomorrow, and we'll be taking a look at uh, the challenges and opportunities for the biodiesel industry. And I can tell you, the mood at this conference is much, much better than it would have been had the uh, tax credit not been uh, reinstated at the end of last year. That tax extenders package was critical for the biodiesel industry, and that'll be a big part of what we talk about in our broadcast today and again tomorrow. We're going to start things off here in Tampa with Scott Fenwick. He is the National Biodiesel Board's Technical Director. Scott, thank you for joining us. Uh, You and I were talking about it as well. I mean, we can't overstate how critical getting the tax incentive back for the biodiesel industry was. I mean, when you look at the history of this industry, you can graph it and see the peaks and valleys based on when the tax credit's in place and when it's not. Yeah, it's certainly, without a doubt, and the mood this week is, is more upbeat than it has practically ever been, um, and the certainty with this tax credit reinstatement provides not only the retroactive uh, resources that our, our producer members needed, but it's three years forward, uh, and that's three years more certainty than this industry has had since the original tax credit was passed back in 2004. For our listeners, could you explain how the tax credit works and why it is so important to the biodiesel industry. It is. When Congress first passed that, they expected there to be growth in renewable fuels. Uh, And this was to assist those renewables to compete in the marketplace, in an open marketplace, with the petroleum fuels already in place. And so this tax credit for the biodiesel industry offers a dollar per gallon um, to the first blender of record that adds splashes just a little bit of petroleum diesel, one-tenth of one percent, back into that gallon to make that gallon more competitive to offer an incentive to blenders and fuel marketers across the country. Because this industry is still really in its infancy. It's still trying to get uh, get established. It really is. I mean, if you consider that petroleum fuels have been around well over 100 years, uh, but our industry, biodiesels, Although we started, we say we started 20, 25 years ago, we've really only been a commercial fuel in the marketplace for a little over 10 years. And that is why the the incentive is so important to get this industry established and get to the point where someday it would not be needed. And we realize that. Uh, we're hopeful for that day when we no longer need that tax incentive, where we can compete in that open market. Um, people are, are desiring more and more low-carbon fuels, lower emissions, better health. And we can provide all of that. There's no doubt 2019 was a very tough year for the biodiesel industry. We saw layoffs and plant closings. Uh, It was tough. Arguably, probably our toughest year in the last 25. 
this year, the new year offers new hope. And so we are excited with the renewal of this tax credit. We are, are, are wound up about going, heading back into Washington, D.C., uh, visiting with our champions and our detractors about why we want to further grow our industry. We want to more than double uh, here in the next 10 years. Yeah, that is a big part of what's being discussed here, this new vision for the biodiesel industry. And it's aggressive growth here in the next few years. It is aggressive. Um, you know, we've, we've gone from less than a million gallons to, to being not quite 3 billion gallons in the marketplace today over the last 15 years. And we're talking about exponential growth here in the next 10. We want to go from being 2.8 billion gallons to a 6 billion gallon a year market as a diesel fuel replacement uh, in any compression ignition engines across the country. So that's uh, aggressive, optimistic. Uh, is it realistic, do you think? We think so. Um, you know, the question has always been, do you have enough feedstock? And we are going to rely on the soybean farmers across the U.S. Uh, to help provide us more feedstocks. Right now, they argue we're not even currently using everything they have to offer. But we're quickly ramping up. Uh, we needed certainty. This tax credit gives us that. And so we expect to see some, some real growth in our industry real quick, right away over the next couple of years. When, when coming off a year like 2019, we just talked about the setback that that was. How quickly can the industry bounce back and get up and running? Obviously, our industry needs some capital. Um, they have that promise now uh, from the federal government, but it is going to take a little bit of time to infuse that capital back into the industry. And so we're not expecting any expansions or new builds here in the next month or two, uh, but certainly once we move further into 2020, by the end of this year, a lot of our producer members had, had made those plans previously and then shelved them. So it's a matter of pulling those blueprints out, dusting them off, uh, and preparing for the future. Something that we'll be talking about here more at the conference and throughout the year is the fact that the, the environmental momentum that is building in this country to make some changes and address some issues, that should uh, play very well for the biodiesel industry. That should really create an opportunity. It is, and, and we are an industry that is, is built upon policies, uh, whether those be federal policies, state policies, and there is a, a growing movement for low-carbon fuels, the environmental and the health benefits that those bring. And so right now we are seeing significant growth on the coast. We've got production centered in the Midwest, and so in some cases we have markets vying against each other for, for who wants our fuel more. And we're excited about that. I think the challenge, too, will be to educate those policymakers that as this move is underway, whether you wanted to call it a green movement or whatever it is, to not overlook industries that we already have, like biodiesel, not just be looking at what's new out there, but look at what we already have. Yeah, you know, we mentioned that earlier. You know, in a lot of cases, we are new. We are the newest type fuel in the marketplace. Uh, but then in, on that same hand, some regulators are considering us first generation and passe and, and no longer worth their time and effort, and we disagree. We are certainly worth the time and effort for all the benefits that we can bring to the marketplace. Carbon policy is going to be a big driver, isn't it? It is. Well, by far, that will be our driver over our vision for the next 10 years. And creates that opportunity to fill that niche that is there, that demand that's going to be growing. 
whether it's it's domestic jobs, energy security, the emissions and environmental benefits, uh, almost too many to mention uh, here in a short 10-minute educational session with a legislator. Well, after a lot of uh, challenges, it looks like some real opportunities are now on the horizon, and uh, I know that industry is uh, preparing to take advantage of those opportunities. Scott, good to see you again. Thank Thank you very much. All right. That is Scott Fenwick, Technical Director for the National Biodiesel Board, as we broadcast here in Tampa, Florida, from the National Biodiesel Conference. Stay with us. More to come here on AOA. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices, but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications, and it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. The patented pod shatter reduction technology canola hybrids from Invigor are the perfect blend of strength and durability. Stronger pod seams and stems protect the canola seeds within while protecting you from potential yield loss. And that gives you added flexibility at harvest, even when dealing with adverse weather conditions. Shattering yield records, not pods. That's smart. Contact your local BASF seed advisor today. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. We're in Tampa, Florida for the National Biodiesel Conference. Joining us now, a familiar voice here on AOA, Greg Anderson, soybean farmer from Nebraska. Usually we're talking about planting time or harvest time. Right now, it's snow and cold time back home, right? Snow and cold, but the farmers are always optimistic. In about 90 days, we'll be planting, hopefully. Yeah. So. Well, hopefully, right? Yeah. yeah. So um, a lot of concern about it's going to be wet again this spring. And you don't have, I mean, you got a lot of moisture already in the ground, right? So you can't take a lot of more moisture. Another wet spring would really set you back. It would, Mike. We're a full profile for moisture in our soils right now. And, you know, going into the winter, full profile of moisture usually means we're going to start the spring that way exactly with that so we've had actually rains during this winter season already which is really unusual and uh, you know so we're, we're we're facing some issues i'm sure at the start but we'll see what happens here shortly you are all soybeans on your farm in nebraska and you have been a long time supporter and promoter of biodiesel you are on the governing board uh, for the national biodiesel board uh, we talked earlier with Scott Fenwick. If we look back over the history of the national biodiesel uh, industry, it's been up and down, up and down, mainly due to the tax credit when it's on, when it's off. Fortunately, it's back on now and will be for the next few years. It's back on, and this is a beautiful scenario for us here. We not only have the retroactiveness of the past two years when we've been without it, but now we have three years going forward. Mm -hmm. It's been since 2016 that we've started the calendar year with a tax credit in place. And so what this does basically is give producers certainty. It gives dynamics to the marketplace, knowing that this is incentive here now for the next uh, years ahead. And and we're looking forward to the effect that that has positively upon the industry as well as agriculture. Last year was such a tough year, Uh, plants idling, laying off workers, uh, hopefully, we'll see a, a quick rebound here. 
I believe so. And already we've seen that uh, happening here just since the, the bill has been signed. And so with that, uh, you know, we have the uh, year going forward. Now plants can do some strategic planning long term. Uh, new hires can be made. Uh, I even envision, you know, more plants being uh, built and established as the industry grows. That'd be good to see the growth because the industry has shown when given the chance with tax credit and things like that, that you can produce not only the figure that the level that the RFS calls for, but you could go above that. That's why it's so frustrating that EPA doesn't raise that figure for you in the RFS. Yes, those RVO have been flatlined at 2.43. We have capacity over $4 billion right now, and as Scott mentioned earlier, and by 2030, we're going to be at $6 billion. So that's important for those volumes to keep going, and we're going to you know, continue to uh, make that known to EPA. And as we often say with ethanol, uh, these small refiner exemptions, they probably have hurt the biodiesel industry even more than the ethanol industry. I believe so. With, without a doubt, you're right, Mike. One small refinery exemption granted can actually close a biodiesel plant because you look at a small refinery a billion gallons a year comes out of that that's that's uh, 20 million gallons of biodiesel and a lot of plants around the country have a 20 30 uh, million gallon per year uh, output so it's it's very been very detrimental to the industry it's hurt us uh, big time and virtually every refinery exemption that's been a applied for has been granted and that needs to stop. So as happy as you are with the tax extension, the tax credit that was in the tax extenders package, your focus and challenge this year along with growing uh, the industry has to be on that RFS and those small refinery exemptions. Yeah, we just want to let the law work. Let it work because it's been proven to be good for America. It's been proven to get, to grow our industry. Uh, we know that uh, Big Oil would like to shut biodiesel down, but we're here to stay. And that's part of our new tagline, Biodiesel Now. It's here to stay. We're talking with Greg Anderson from Nebraska. He's uh, on the National Biodiesel Board, uh, Governing Board. Uh, there are some great opportunities. I mean, this industry is looking to grow, to expand. A lot of things happening with carbon policy across the country that should open some opportunities for this industry. That's really where our markets are, Mike, both on the East Coast with BioHeat and on the West Coast with California. It's all about getting to as close to net zero carbon emissions as possible. That's what's really driving this. And, of course, biodiesel is the solution for that and renewable diesel is the solution for that we have the best carbon score of any liquid fuel out there we continue to show our stellar record of reducing greenhouse gases and this is the alternative that people will turn to to get cleaner air you are making headway on the coast california is a state that if if you can get into that market with your with your fuel that that can not only is it a big state in and of itself, but it can also help kind of set a precedent, right, on some of these environmental policies. Exactly. The whole West Coast follows California's lead, and ultimately America follows California's lead. But we see progress uh, up and down the West Coast with California taking the initiative, but then also Oregon and Washington following similar uh, goals that California has in place. California takes 20% of all biodiesel today, and they want more. And so what's driving that is the, the carbon emissions, lowering that. I remember the first time I was out in California in the mid-80s and being in the San Fernando Valley, all the smog that just settled over that valley. Well, we don't see that today. Uh, we see uh, advanced biofuels such as uh, biodiesel taking uh, pre uh, 
prevalent place in that market, but we also see the diesel engine changing so much, vastly so over the years, to be become better and more efficient. And California has some of the most stringent emission standards in, in the world in that state. And so it's important for biodiesel to be placed there. Our technical team, such as Scott and others, have made sure with the original equipment manufacturers that biodiesel is working in all those diesel applications. That has been a challenge, much like we've seen with ethanol working with automakers. Uh, you've had to work with uh, the diesel engine manufacturers to try to work together to move forward on this. Yes, and ASTM standards keep changing. Mm-hmm. And so the diesel engine keeps changing and being modified and cleaner. And sometimes we're seeing in some of these cities the diesel exhaust coming out of the uh, engines, uh, out of the exhaust is cleaner than the typical air that people breathe in. And that's just a tribute to how vast uh, our technical team has worked with the original equipment manufacturers to ensure that we could meet and exceed those standards that they want to put in place for for diesel engines. I mentioned this earlier, but I think another challenge is going to be the good news is this move on the environmental front and cleaner air uh, creates the opportunity for for, uh, biodiesel. But there are those policy makers or decision makers that seem to all want to look to something new whether it's electric or whatever and overlook what we already have here and and really get behind it well biodiesel is available today it's a commercially available in all 50 states i use it year-round on my farm in my all my diesel equipment and that's what is good about this and especially with the heating oil industry in the northeast people don't have to convert their petroleum-based heating oil systems over to something new, they can drop in bioheat and continue to enjoy their same system, although with cleaner, more efficient uh, workings of, of the fuel. And so the the big landmark, uh, I guess we would say big landmark uh, resolution, because it was called the Providence Resolution, it was back in September of 19, where all of the oil heat dealers came to, to uh, a summit meeting and unanimously voted to use bioheat going renewable in all of the heating oil by the year 2050. And that's going to be huge for the continuation of our growing market, that here's a a new industry embracing, wanting our fuel from uh, the heating oil industry. So that's great news. That's almost as exciting to me as the tax credit that was just uh, passed, and and, and more so because it sets the stage for future growth. Greg, what is the as you see it, the farmer view, the farmer attitude about biodiesel? Well, the farmers need to understand, and and we already see it, uh, more soybean oil used uh, for the uh, feedstocks. We see animal fats. We see corn oil, canola contributing as well. Soy oil will continue to be the feedstock of choice, and we have the most readily available. So, Mike, uh, last year we used 8.5 billion pounds of soybean oil for biodiesel production that was in a down year that was in a down year and that's a third of our domestic crush so we have some aggressive goals now by the year 2030 to uh, look at 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 more than doubling that and we certainly can with advances in uh, you know technology uh, genetics of our soybean but for many many years the soybean oil has been in such excess it's been a drag on our market prices and it's so important now that if biodiesel were to go away today, our farm gate price at the elevator would be a dollar fifteen cents a bushel less. So that just so, shows how much soybean oil is contributing to the uh, supporting the soybean price. Yeah, we might take that for granted, and it's important to note that how important it is, and the 
potential and opportunity to, as you said, to grow this market even more. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Greg, good to talk with you again. Can't wait till we talk about the planning time. It'll be here hopefully before very long, uh, but it seems like a long ways off when there's snow on the ground and wind chills. But thanks. Good to talk with you. Thanks, Mike. Greg Anderson from Nebraska, a member of the National Biodiesel Board Governing Board. All right, up next, we'll talk more about uh, some of those opportunities for the biodiesel industry, such as BioHeat. That's next. Stay with us from Tampa. This is AOA. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Grain futures at the Board of Trade mostly lower overnight as some trader doubts over when or if China will soon make large grain purchases continue to fester in the market. Some doubts over the benefits of that Phase 1 trade deal. Managed money firms have taken a net long position on U.S. soybeans. That, according to data released by the CFTC, on Friday is the first time since late November that firms have shifted their net opposition toward the long side of U.S. soybeans, according to CFTC data. Soybean futures an hour into the day, defensive March down ten and a half at nine nineteen and a quarter. Traders waiting to see if China starts to import American farm products in greater quantities following the Phase One deal. Export sales this week will come out on Friday because of Monday's federal holiday. In corn, the March contract down two and three quarters, 386 and a half. Chicago wheat March, six and three quarters higher at 577 and a quarter. Kansas City March up a penny and a half at 495 and three quarters. Minneapolis Spring Wheat March up a half cent at 560 and a half. For livestock, the American live cattle, February down 15 at 126.20. April down a nickel at 127.20. Feeder cattle March down 52 at 144.47. April down 50 at 147.37. For lean hog futures, February contract down 85, 66.82. April down a dollar 20 at 72.90. Outside markets on Wall Street for the major financial indicators. The Dow is down 93, NASDAQ down 9, S&P down 10, crude oil down 15 cents a barrel. You're listening to AOA. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. We are in Tampa, Florida for the National Biodiesel Conference and Expo. Joined now by Paul Nazaro. He is the Supply Chain Director for the National Biodiesel Board. Paul, thank you for joining us. And one of the exciting uh, areas when we look at developing uses of biodiesel is bioheat. We talk primarily about the northeastern part of the country, but kind of give us a little background. It's been around for a while, but it's really now starting to grow and catch on. Yes. Um, so BioHeat um, has been a developing market since 2003. Uh, the oil heat industry is a family-based uh, business segment, similar to soybean farmers. It's actually operated by family businesses, not big oil. And 
what was going on there back home was there was market contraction because the fuel actually had bad imagery. Uh, it replaced coal. I mean, if you stop and think about it, petroleum or heating oil has been around for pretty much 100 years. But uh, on or about World War One is when the oil heat industry started emerging, taking the place of coal. And nothing really has changed there since until bioheat in 2003. So for the last uh, decade, we have been focused on the uh, technical aspects of getting the fuel approved for use, working with OEMs, etc. It was about trying to get the industry to a, a market renaissance because the market was contracting at the speed of light. At one point in time, there's approximately 10.5 billion gallons of home heating oil being consumed in 23 states, primarily in New England and the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, today, it's down to about 3.5 billion gallons. So the market contraction dictated that something had to be done. So back in 2003, I was representing the National Biodiesel Board on low blends for you know transit buses, mm -hmm. and I just took stock and said, you know, why can't we put biodiesel in home heating oil? Why can't we improve the parameters of this heating oil and do what we're doing on diesel fuel? So I rallied the troops, uh, some of them who are here. I'm going to be on a panel discussion tomorrow, some of the leaders from New England. And I said, this is a direction we really need to take seriously. Uh, from that point there, it's been um, a challenge uh, to say this has been an easy you know, change when you stop and think. Nothing's really changed until we stepped up and changed it. Otherwise, these family businesses would not survive. So in biodiesel, we often talk about, you know, is it a B5 blend or a B20 blend or whatever? For when, in bioheat, what is it? So in the initial stages in 2003, we worked on getting approval for 5%, B5. That's the definition of bioheat. Since we've evolved to higher blends, um, and as Greg mentioned earlier, the Providence Resolution, uh, they're going to be shooting for B20 by 2023 be 50 by 2030 and then mm -hmm. net zero moving forward so this is going to be a b100 market at some point in time uh, when we get to 2050 but for the short term there's three levels of bioheat bioheat five percent bioheat plus is six to twenty and then super plus is 21 to 100 so we are already positioned with our trademark logos we worked with the mbb to protect the trademark and that's going to be the trajectory ultimately it'll all be bioheat super plus so obviously You've had now a few years to show how it works, uh, the performance, and we're, we're seeing this growth now that you talked about. Yeah, we went through all the technical aspects of it, but that will continue. That's in perpetuity. You're always evaluating the fuel, uh, making sure you're optimizing it for market conditions. So where we are right now is this Providence Resolution is a major undertaking. Basically, over 250 fuel dealers came together, and they elected uh, to move down this road to those numbers I just gave you. So the big challenge now is organizing all these leaders. I mean, you're not convincing one person. You're convincing mm, 25 or 30 individual leaders on how to stay in lockstep. So our big challenge right now is speaking one, one voice. That's where we are right now. What is the growth potential? What, what do you see in the next 10, 15 years for bioheat? So 20% of three billion gallons is a you know a very generous market long term it's a three billion gallon four billion gallon market for bioheat and is it always going to be primarily the northeast or how much do you see it could grow from there so the northeast and the mid-atlantic is the core out of 3.5 billion gallons of home heating oil i would say about 2.8 billion comes from that little corridor uh, this heating oil in Seattle, this heating oil in Ohio, this heating oil in Kentucky, North Carolina, but diminutive. And when you're building a program, you have to go where all the all the volume is. I was going to say, when we say just the uh, Northeast, uh, there are a lot of people in that corridor there that you're talking about. Uh, a tremendous amount of homeowners um, that have some big decisions to make because we're under an oppressive carbon reduction attack in New England as well. Like the whole country is under siege, but. Um, their choices are 
either align with the bioheat movement or they're going to be forced into using electric heat pumps. So electric heat pumps are just, at this point in time, they're not really affordable. To convert a 1,700-square-foot home from a liquid fuel to what we call split systems, the ones that hang on your walls and get directly ducked out the house, uh, you're talking $20,000. So uh, I don't know how many homeowners are going to sit there and lay out that type of capital to get in line with government's you know, requirements. So I think BioHeat offers them the opportunity to keep their f- local fuel oil dealer, family business. Um, will the cost of fuel go up? To be determined. No one really knows where the cost will settle up. But if you're talking $20,000 to retrofit a house, even if the fuel is 50 cents more per gallon, it may be the most cost-compliant option. I was going to ask, how is BioHeat, uh, how is it price competitive with, with the It has been since we start really playing distribution with this, like hitting the street. It's been equal to, and sometimes less. Depends on the, it's, an, it's you know, soybean oil gets transesified into biodiesel. At any given time, biodiesel can be equal to a less than, or it could be more. So it's following the same pathway. We're talking with Paul Nazaro, Supply Chain supply chain Director for the National Biodiesel Board here at the National Biodiesel Conference in, in Tampa, Florida. Uh, we heard CEO Donnell Rehagen in his opening remarks this morning talk about how carbon policy in this country is really driving the conversation right now and the opportunity for a fuel like biodiesel. That's exactly what's driving bioheat. It's carbon. There's really so much. Um, it's not unique. I mean, what's happening on the West Coast with the LCFS program. In, in 2003, when I started the bioheat movement, there was no LCFS. There was no California demand. And in 2007, it started to emerge. And, and, and the rest is history. It's a huge opportunity in the West Coast. Uh, all the renewable diesel, all the biodiesels being diverted out there. So my constituent back home, they're concerned about that because we're not going to wrestle. We're going to choose not to wrestle for those gallons. But it's going to be interesting where the producers actually end up putting that you know, finished fuel because we're going to be equally competitive. And fr- frankly... We probably will be the dominant volumetric demand uh, market sector, I would say. I mean, just do the, the basic math. Net zero, if you're at four, we, we, we anticipate growth here, not just sustaining market share. We believe there will be people using natural gas that will convert over to liquid fuels long term. Wow. So when w- this new vision for the biodiesel industry that uh, is, uh, is looking at significant growth over the next uh, 20, 30 years, a large part of it then could be through bioheat? I, I, I believe so. I know so. <laughs> you know, the thing about bioheat that jumps out at me, I've often, in comparing ethanol and biodiesel, I've said, you know, ethanol is a is a product that, you know, it it's in our in, in almost everybody's vehicle right. in the fuel supply, so it's not so much a, a niche market. It's more widespread. Right. Where biodiesel has been working on, you know, buses or trucks where in more of a niche market, you start getting into heating people's homes, and you're getting more mainstream then. Um, it's more personal. Mm-hmm. I mean, ethanol has the edge because it's a mandated fuel. It's efficiently moved across the country in unit trains. I mean, that's the other issue with bioheating oil. Production for biodiesel is primarily in the center of the nation. And the demands on the East Coast. This fuel has to now come via rail. So when you start talking the numbers I'm talking about, you're talking about, and by the way, we take this fuel between November and March. That's the heating season. Producers love this because we offer them rateable distribution of their products. So in states like, say, Minnesota, where they may come from B20 down to B10, maybe because of the cold weather anticipation, we're calling for it out east. So producers think this is really, really good. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think uh, the bioheat movement is going to dictate um, 
how much we can actually take in here and store, but that rail system has to be, that's what we're doing now. We're closely evaluating the ability of the rail system to manage some 25,000 trains that would come in in those six months. Yeah, because as you said, the production's in the Midwest, right. and you've got to get it out to the east and west coast. Right. And, and for all intents and purposes, the heating oil industry was taking distillate fuels, you know, generic heating oil off ships. I mean, we're a waterborne uh, supply point. You're in the center of the nation, you're off pipelines. We don't have pipelines in New England. All our heating oil would normally come in off of hmm. a ship. And so that's disadvantage to the biodiesel producers because they're not going to ship product up the Gulf and around. The, I mean, they could. Cost efficiencies is very important. So that's what we're, we're exploring. We already managed the fuel, the quality. We got that down. Now it's a matter of how do you get this large volume over time up into that those tanks. You've created the help create the demand. Now you get the get the supply there, right? Exactly, exactly. But that that was a huge hurdle to overcome to get the product, the quality of the product, and convince people that they should make that switch to it. Absolutely. But, so you've taken a big step there. Yeah. Well, you know, working with NBB and people like Scott Fenwick and Steve Howell specifically and the National Oil Heat Research Alliance, you know, they've been collaborating on the science side of this. Um, it has been challenging, but when you have people like we have, I'm not going to say it was a walk in a park, but it was a lot easier with the right people. So soybean growers in the Midwest that are listening to this show, they ought to be thinking their end user in many cases could be someone living in the New England area heating their home this winter. Or take a hot, hot shower. <laughs> yeah. So what you mentioned transportation. What is, what's another next big step that you hope to be able to take in this pro- process? So we're running B50 trials right now. Um, B50 trials? Yeah, we have, uh, matter of fact, um, Charles Ugoletto, he's the president of Cubby Oil. He'll be here tomorrow to be on a panel with us. Uh, he's taken the initiative. He's been doing B40. So we have people that, we have one supplier uh, in Western Massachusetts that's actually been doing B70. So we know this stuff works. I was going to ask you, I mean, is there a chance to get to B100? Chance. we got to do it. <laughs> got to do it. All yeah. right. It sounds good. Well, that's encouraging to hear. Very, you know, very promising. A growing Absolutely. market we've been hearing about for a few years and glad to hear that it's really taken hold. Good to talk to you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Paul Nazaro, Supply Chain Director for the National Biodiesel Board, that growing bioheat market. All right. We'll have more from the National Biodiesel Conference here in Tampa coming up. Stay with us here on AOA. Some measure success by Italian suits, corner offices, and luxury yachts. Farmers measure success differently. It's breathing fresh country air, taking care of the people you love, and knowing how to measure success in your soybean acres? That's smart. With Credenz Soybeans, you get a precise variety bred to fit your acres. And that Credenz variety comes with agronomic expertise and local insights from your BASF team. So plant your sign of success. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over to second, in time, on the first, double play! Success sounds like this to a Credenz soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop? That's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. 
And welcome back. We're in Tampa, Florida for the National Biodiesel Conference. Joining me now is Dave Walton from Iowa, another member of the National Biodiesel Board Governing Board. Dave, thanks for joining us. Uh, I mean, the feeling here is, I think, cautiously optimistic. Certainly the good news to get the biodiesel tax credit back, still concerns with the RFS and the small refinery exemptions, but it just feels like this industry is again poised to take off. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, uh, a year ago, um, there was a lot of concern about the industry and the future viability of it, and uh, with the, the tax credit extension and some of the other issues that we're starting to get resolution on, uh, there's a lot more optimism in the room this year. Because now you're talking about expanding the market, uh, higher profile in the fuel space, and, and letting people know about uh, the quality of the product, and this is a premium product, and, and taking advantage of these opportunities that are out there. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, uh, we're trying to position biodiesel as uh, an advanced biofuel, and it's actually uh, has properties that... Uh, make it better than petroleum diesel. So uh, improved lubricity, cleaner burning, uh, lower carbon emissions, uh, all those kinds of things make it a natural uh, a natural fuel for heavy equipment. Not that there wasn't a need for biodiesel before, but it almost seems like with what's happening now with the issues around the environment, you might have been a little ahead of your time, but the good thing is that you're here and ready to take advantage of these opportunities now. Sure. We, we certainly were ahead of our time. Uh, I, I saw a graphic this morning that uh, 10 years ago, there were about four states that recognized the carbon-reducing ability of, of biodiesel. Now there's uh, 25 or 26 states, and I think that speaks to how uh, regulators and consumers both have uh, really embraced it as a low-carbon fuel. What do you say to farmers uh, that you talk with uh, when they're growing soybeans and, and, and trying to get them to make the connection to biodiesel and, and carbon policy and all these things that we're talking about, and how do you bring that all together? That's, that's sometimes a difficult conversation because the tie-in between selling a bushel of soybeans to a crusher and that oil going to a biodiesel plant, uh, they understand that connection because it's fairly direct. But when you talk about using that fuel to lower carbon footprint, that's, that gets to be a little bit more intangible for them. Uh, what I say is that uh, if, if we meet some of our initial goals, we're going to take uh, millions of cars, the, the equivalent of millions of cars off the road. Uh, we're going to clean up the environment through better fuel or better air quality. Um, and, and so those things, I think, tend to resonate a little bit more with them. These clean air initiatives, uh, not that they're new, but I th they're go they're going to be uh, higher profile now. They're going to be more emphasis on them, and that's why it's important to say, remind these folks, hey, we've got we've got a product right here that can help this uh, on this issue, and don't you don't have to. Not that there isn't going to be room for new technologies, but you've got one right here that you can use right now. Yeah, it started on the coast, and east and west coast have, have uh, generally kind of led the discussion, but we're starting to hear more states in the Midwest even talk about uh, how can we lower the carbon footprint of our, our fuel supply. And so uh, even at the legislative level right now, there's been some discussions uh, in, in Illinois and Missouri and, and states surrounding Iowa about uh, how do we um, – really push this fuel in, into the supply to lower our overall carbon footprint. Because I think uh, for, for the non-farmer crowd, that's that's one of the things that they're, they're asking us to do is to lower our carbon footprint. So it's an easy way to do it with, with uh, biofuels, and we should be burning it in all our equipment. Yeah, because we were looking at that map this morning. 
the production's coming out of the Midwest, mm-hmm. but the big use is starting on mm-hmm. the coast, and we got to bring it on into the middle of the country too. Yeah, and it, it's it's a matter right now. It's a higher value market, so uh, we could pr- we produce it. It's a value added product for us, and and Iowa especially is an export state. We we can't consume everything we grow right. in there, so we look for the higher. Who's going to pay the most for it? And right now, it's it's California, Oregon, uh, the Northeast. But we also have to, um, if we're going to see expansion of, of fuel volumes, we, we need to bring that back to the Midwest and, and burn it closer to home, too. You talk about pricing. It was brought up today. This is a premium product, biodiesel, mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. The, it, it's a higher quality product over mm-hmm. than just diesel. So then you've got to position it and market it that way in the marketplace. Sure. Um, and that's one of the things with the Vision 2020 that we're talking about is uh, we're going to take it from um, an additive or we're a B5 blend or B10 blend. And we need to lead the discussion with bio, biodiesel. So it's a it's a biodiesel blend and how, how much of it do you want? Um, but we really need to change that conversation and, and let consumers know especially that uh, this is a premium product and, and you may need to pay a premium price for it. So much of this is timing, and it just feels like maybe the time now is right mm-hmm. for this industry to really take off. Yeah, the, the biodiesel tax credit was really key to that. So um, <clears throat> the fact that we have three years in the future of stability in the marketplace really allows those biodiesel producers that, that have said that they want to expand, they have plans to expand, now they can go to their lenders and say, we have certainty for three years, and in, and in that amount of time, we can pay for that expansion. So those checkbooks are going to start to open, and you're going to see uh, plants expand. Uh, they've been held back by federal policy from doing that mm-hmm. up to now. So one of the one of the first goals is by 2030, we'd like to see six billion gallons of biodiesel in the marketplace. Uh, those producers are ready to go. I mean, they they've been chomping at the bit for a couple of years now. Well, that biodiesel tax credit was was suspended. Uh, but now that they have certainty, they're ready to charge forward. And if you could get some resolution on the small refinery exemption issue with the uh, EPA, uh, all of a sudden that $6 billion feels feels doable now. Pretty real. You know, we're at 2.43 right now. I think the boilerplate capacity in the U.S. is somewhere around 3.5. Um, so it's not a stretch to go to 6 in, in 10 years. Which it means big demand for correct for soybean growers correct. right right now it's uh, the biodiesel industry adds about 90 cents to every bushel of soybeans um and say that again because i wonder if a lot of people realize that yeah so uh the economists have looked at the the biodiesel industry at a whole and took taken a holistic view of it um, but it adds about 90 cents to every bushel of soybeans that i produce so if we continue that growth that means more for soybean growers uh and their, their profitability to help their profitability hopefully in the future so mm-hmm. Great. Good to talk with you, Dave. Thank you. Very upbeat here, more optimistic, and we like to hear it. Thanks a lot. Dave Walton from Iowa, member of the National Biodiesel Board Governing Board. More tomorrow from here at the Biodiesel Conference in Tampa. Hope you'll join us on AOA. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credenced soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, Credence Soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for? That's smart. Talk to your authorized Credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. 
Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions.